this episode wraps up the week of season one, episode two. It's going to share both uh, the press and fan archives, uh, comments that I've collected from critics and uh, people watching the show at the time or remembering when they first watched it, but also um, my own archive, my pieces that I've written in the past on this episode. Additionally, I have a shape of the show section that's going to include some fan and critical uh, pieces as well as my own, but also some other comments that don't give spoilers away per se, but talk about the general contours of the show, or in this case, probably more so uh, speculation that people had at the time. So it's not spoilers again, because they didn't know what was going to happen, but if you want to avoid even getting kind of contaminated, so to speak, with other people's ideas about where the show might be going, you'll want to avoid that section. So I'll give a warning before we get into there. And then at the very end, the only part of this episode that could be considered an actual spoiler, and even then a pretty minor one, is just playing the first minute of audio from the next episode as a kind of lead into that. And then I'll describe what we see on the screen. And then uh, tomorrow, season two, episode three will begin coverage for that week so here we go with the archives for season one episode two for myself this was actually the first episode of twin peaks i ever saw in 2006 when i rented the first available disc from netflix it was a year before the gold box dvd set was finally released and and that was when the pilot was finally made available on dvd i don't think the second season was even out yet so there were only a few episodes available to rent and I stopped after the following episode. And since then, I've gone back and forth. Sometimes it seems like a letdown after the Lynchian cinematic pilot, and at others it's delightful, particularly because it tackles the monumental task of translating Lynch's unique vision into a week-to-week TV drama. This particular time, last uh, few days when I watched this before recording this, this was one of the times I've most enjoyed watching it. I think the longer I wait after watching uh, like the pilot, the more purely it feels just like a pleasure. And now I want to read some non-spoiler pieces that I've written in the past, some excerpts from these. The first is from my 2008 episode guide. I would open each of those entries with a quote, and this was the third time I watched this episode because I saw it once independently of the show a few years earlier. It's like I'm having the most beautiful dream and the most terrifying nightmare all at once. Actually, I could have chosen several memorable quotes to lead this entry. There's Cooper delicately sipping his morning cup of joe and declaring with characteristic brio, you know, this is, excuse me, a damn fine cup of coffee, or grinning as he advises a fellow FBI agent, shortly after discussing the autopsy of a brutally murdered teen, to check out a local diner because they've got a cherry pie that'll kill ya. And who could forget Pete Martell barging in on his guests as they sip freshly poured coffee to warn them, it's the damnedest thing, there's a fish in the percolator. Sliding further into camp, we have a dreamy flashback of Laura with James as she asks him why she's so happy, and he speculates, because your skin is so soft and you smell so good? If it's the creepy yet campy mood you're going for, why not that bizarre freeze frame of Laura's face in the home movie, as a voice on the soundtrack moans, help me. And from unmitigated creepiness and terror, we could go with Laura's mother's incantation, I miss her so much, repeated five times before her eyes widen in terror, and she sees... Wait, and we'll get to that. Anyway, it's Donna's line to her mother which I chose, because it best sums up the hard-to-pin-down mood and tone of Twin Peaks, a quality that only makes the show more fascinating. 
in 2016, there was a Reddit rewatch where I wrote comments and later collected them into a first-time viewer companion, just reacting to the episodes kind of off the cuff as I watched them again in a way that I could share with new viewers. So here's part of what I wrote for that response. Today, watching this episode for what must be at least the 10th time, I'm mostly struck by how much it needs the pilot, but also how much it's able to redirect the weird energies of that feature-length premiere and start to channel them in productive directions. It's also interesting that while this is the first episode shot on sets and Southern Californian exteriors, welcome to Twin Peaks and Malibu, it doesn't quite explore those surroundings yet. Maybe director Dwayne Dunham was nervous that if he focused too much on the decor, viewers would pick up that this was no longer Woodsy Washington. For now, the emphasis seems to be on solidifying the characters and narrative threads for the sake of future episodes. In some cases, especially with haircuts, this involves some twists and leaps. My favorite retcon is Big Ed claiming that he was out on his feet before the two teenagers knocked him out due to being drugged. Sure, Ed. Sure. In the media, in reaction to Twin Peaks uh, episode, this episode, there wasn't obviously nearly as much of a particular focus as there was on the pilot a few uh, four days earlier when it had premiered on a Sunday, but people were still talking about Twin Peaks in general a lot. There's a little piece of media commentary that came out after this episode that I highlighted in my roundup a while ago, but I'm going to save that for the speculation section because uh, I'm going to do this with a, a piece of fan commentary too. It's mostly a pretty a frivolous, uh, goofy piece of speculation, but we'll save it till then anyways. The critics were generally quite positive about this episode. They obviously didn't lavish it in the same praise as the pilot, but Jonathan Rosenbaum, the well-known film critic, and also some other skeptics, noted a slip-off between the episodes, between the pilot and this one, particularly the fact that David Lynch wasn't directing it. And later critics have had somewhat mixed views. I even saw one review a few years ago that was like re-watching the show, and they said, wow, the show nearly collapsed. Uh, right out of the gate because of this episode. They thought it was so bad. But that's pretty rare. Most people tend to like it. I think the idea was that uh, of, of people who were critical is that there's too much dialogue and exposition and plotty stuff, not enough of the Lynchian mystique and the atmosphere, and the direction is a little plain. Fans are usually pretty positive about this episode, uh, particularly the catchy lines. wonder if any episode, even the pilot, is quoted more often than this one. And at the time, the fans who were watching it were commenting, uh, there were a few, very small amount, but there were people who had access either through school or military to a uh, early, early internet service, Usenet, where it was like listservs. I'm not sure even exactly what it looked like, like on the screen. I guess it would be the old black screens with the kind of green or white text just on it like that. But people would talk about the show on these Usenet uh, message boards. They got their own board or forum around the time of this episode. Like, that's the earliest posts you can find on Usenet. There's a whole archive of this on Google, and I rounded this up a few years ago. It's called alt.tv.twinpeaks. That was the board that became really a locus of energy and speculation and commentary and humor and everything around the show. It was one of the earliest fan communities, a very early online uh, experience around Twin Peaks. And Mark Frost was even made aware of this. Somebody printed out like pages and pages of this and brought it to him. It was like, look at all this stuff people are saying about the show. So the early comment that I gathered was from Charlie Heilman on April 17th, 1990. Five days after the episode aired, he wrote, 
Didn't the FBI get their half of the necklace and the railroad car? Not by going through her belongings they found in her room at home. Perhaps you could say they were going through her belongings by investigating the clothes and blood in the railroad car. I think the second episode was not near as good as the first. The commercials have come in full force now, and the pace of the scenes have been sacrificed in the process. On one hand, it seems like they want to pack a lot of action in, to keep people's attention up. On the other hand, they have much more time than a typical movie, so the topics drift, creating a kind of soap opera feeling. Many characters, but no coherent plot or subplot. Of course, it's the beginning. The second episode did not move near as well as the first. The commercials slice it all up even further. Lynch is fighting the medium. So in that case, even a fan was a little bit disconcerted with the uh, direction the show is going in. Now we're going to move on to what I would call the shape of the show. And before we even get to that, I'm going to include a few pieces of speculation from 1990. So these literally couldn't have spoilers. But nonetheless, you may not want to hear what I thought was interesting of what people were guessing about at the time. Here's a part of that Usenet comment that I didn't want to read because it's very mildly speculatory in the previous section. So here's the rest of that. By the way, somebody referred earlier to the European showing of Twin Peaks and said the killer was revealed in their version. We, too, may have been given a glimpse of the real killer. In the last show, when Laura's best friend visited Laura's mother, the mother was crying out, I miss her so much, repeatedly. Then she went into hallucinations, altering Laura's best friend's face and hair to become Laura, the most frightening moment for me, and then turned to see a blonde-haired young man staring at her from a low position. Then she screamed. The apparition looked like a new character to me, with an L.A. hardcore rocker puff haircut and face, if you can imagine that. Perhaps that's the more typical TV character trying to nudge his way in. On April 17, 1990, Nick Lubevsky wrote, Here's my theory. The sheriff did it. Why? Because no one would ever suspect him. And just think of how good he'll look when he catches the, quote, killer. He's going to frame someone, I don't know who. Remember how old the mayor is? That's right, he's going to retire. And guess who's going to run for mayor? That's right, the sheriff, who is a power-hungry psycho-sociopath. You want to know how he did it? He started a cult that the town is going to blame the murder on. Many people know about the cult and are in it, but it's very secret. The only evidence thus far is the scene where Bobby and his best friends are barking at Jay in the town prison. When Bobby started barking, his friends joined in immediately indicating it's something that they've done before. I maintain they do it at meetings of the cult. The evil sheriff theory also explains why he is seducing the richest woman in Twin Peaks. More developments on Friday when I have a completely different set of theories. We have Readers See Suspect All Over Twin Peaks by Greg Dawson in the Orlando Sentinel from April 16th, 1990. This is from a radio show he did where he was asking callers to uh, guess who, the, who killed Laura Palmer. Heck, even the log lady was included. Actually, her log got the vote. A lot of callers were shocked to learn that they weren't alone in naming FBI agent Cooper as the killer. So many, in fact, that he tied as leading suspect with another least likely, Audrey, the hotel owner's spacey daughter, and an obvious choice, Dr. Jacoby, the loopy psychiatrist. Next on the viewer's hit parade was Leo, the brutish truck driver, he of the bloody shirt and homicidal aura. Leo is the most likely suspect, but perhaps in director David Lynch's skewed universe, that brings Leo full circle and makes him least likely, thus most likely, 
other suspects in order of votes were Sheriff Harry S. Truman, Laura's best friend Donna, Donna's father, the doctor who refused to perform the autopsy, the weeping deputy, the Charles Manson figure that Laura's mother hallucinated, a mysterious stranger not yet seen, Laura's boyfriend Bobby, Laura's other boyfriend James, Ed of the Big Ed's Gas Farm, the eye patch lady, Ed's drapery-obsessed wife, Nadine, Audrey's emotionally disturbed brother, the school principal, the Indian-looking deputy, unseen Diane, the one Cooper talks to in his tape recorder, the Chinese woman who once owned the mill, Leo's girlfriend, the waitress, Norma, Big Ed's lover, the guy on the elevator, Greg Dawson, David Lynch, and Pat Sajak. There's a Next on Twin Peaks segment at the end of this episode, and it's pretty vague. It mostly emphasizes uh, uh, Jack with one eye and note on a note piece of notepaper and this place with uh, all of these women coming out of a room, and then like uh, Leo is kind of the other main focus. People keep being worried about Leo, Leo, and they see him approaching with a flashlight. It's Leo, so they're setting an ominous mood here. Three years later, Lynch scripted and filmed the Log Lady introduction for when the show was rebroadcast on Bravo. And in this episode's intro, she talks about her own log and that there's reasons for everything. And there's people who look for reasons. And she asks, are they called detectives? Watch and see what life teaches. So this really evokes the beginning of an investigation and also highlights the Log Lady's role on screen in this episode, which these intros will do from time to time. Lynch was given descriptions of each episode to refresh his memory before he drove into the woods and meditated and then wrote these introductions. So this feels like it's spurred by a plot element, but also the idea that a proper detective narrative is beginning now after the mysterious air of the pilot. Finally, fan memories from the Doug Forum. Today we'll highlight reactions from the first appearance of Bob when Sarah freaks out on the Palmer couch. Rami Arola wrote, Again, I recall I saw this in the pilot the first time I saw the series. I was horrified by the sudden image. In episode one, it was also scary to see Laura's face suddenly appearing over Donna's face. There was something very frightening in it. The user Audrey Horn wrote, Creepy, but didn't give it much thought. I knew enough to know that this is a big red herring. Gabrielle said, Didn't exactly see him as Bob. Sarah Palmer was freaky and weird anyways, and this bloke Lynch was an oddball. So why wouldn't she see what I thought was a, quote, Red Indian? Different era, different ways to describe people. At the end of the sofa. I thought perhaps he was a native spirit who might be a good guy. Hope's Fall wrote, I remember my sister constantly telling me that Bob was a ghost, and the scene where Sarah screams at the vision of him when Donna's face changes gave me nightmares for literally weeks. Hooded Matt said, There was a raised eyebrow. I think I said something like, Is that the killer? No, it can't be. Is she remembering? Wydru Drezel said, scared the hell out of me and intrigued me. Ross said, honestly, I don't remember exactly what I thought at that point, but I love the bizarre, mysterious, and even horror underpinnings. As to who that was, I don't think I had any guess. Bob One wrote, strange enough, I don't remember any reaction, but I do remember by the time episode four had its premiere, when Andy is drawing a portrait from Sarah's vision, the shadow of Bob was deep within me. And here's how I responded to my own question. I'm going to discuss the pilot further down the line because I didn't watch it until after episodes one and two. Only the Artisan DVD set was available at this time. Watching episode one, I wasn't sure yet if I would like Twin Peaks. Felt a bit more soapy in early 90s TV than I expected. I particularly remember getting this impression from the jail cell scene with Bobby and Mike for some reason. Plus, it's always odd to enter in media res. Everyone's talking about Laura Palmer. This is the episode with those weird flashbacks and video montages and things that happened the day and night before. I'm not sure if I even realized at first this wasn't the pilot, but it became clear pretty quickly. 
I wondered if Lynch had just executive produced the show, or if he actually played a role in its development. There was something there, but I wasn't hooked. Until... Good God, when Bob's face popped up on the screen, I literally leaped out of my chair and yelled so loudly that my roommate heard me from the other room. In that instant, I knew I was going to like this show, and that it would definitely be Lynchian because that moment reminded me so much of the creature behind the dumpster in Mulholland Drive. I'd never seen anything like this on a TV show before. In 2015, I ranked all of the episodes of seasons one and two and wrote entries on each one in the order that I ranked them. This episode was ranked number 17, and I wrote, All in all, one is just a completely solid episode, chugging along on the power of what has been established for Twin Peaks while subtly adding new complications and angles. And yet, here we are, with the first regular episode of the series, a member of the golden first season, not even managing to crack the top half of my list. Partly that's the strength of everything to come, but it's also due to episode one's limitations, which feels like a better word than weakness. The episode does exactly what it needs to do, transitioning the potentially standalone two-hour TV event into an hour-long ongoing weekly series, investing us in the individual characters, some of whom, including Coop, felt a bit colder in the pilot, and feeding us enough morsels of plot to establish some season-long arcs, while leaving plenty withheld for later revelations. But so many episodes do more than what they need to do, and so episode one often strikes me as a little underwhelming. There are many great moments, but no scenes that fully transport me from beginning to end. This was the first episode of Twin Peaks that I ever saw, before the pilot was widely available, and I had a mixed impression at the time. Much of it seemed very conventionally TV-ish, and I wondered how deep David Lynch's involvement really went. Then came the scene at the Palmer House, and Bob popped up and I was completely hooked, although the jump scare doesn't do much for me anymore. What episode one really has going for it, what reminds me of its worth and gets me excited for upcoming entries, is that feeling of existing in a rich world of endless possibilities, even if we aren't doing much with them yet. The Laura mystery, which hovers over everything, still feels tantalizingly out of reach, even as this episode brings us closer to her than the pilot, via her first voice recording, a gauzy flashback, and a weirdly overdubbed and distorted help me. Watching this, I can get a sense of how audiences at the time could be both fascinated and frustrated by the mystery, wondering with dread if it was going to tease them forever, or if, someday in the distant future, they would finally get answers. And that concludes our journey through episode one, a.k.a. season one, episode two, Traces to Nowhere. And now we're going to look at the next episode, a sneak peek, the first minute we're going to play the audio, and I'll describe what happened. So if you haven't watched that episode yet, you can tune out here. If you want a little taste, you can keep listening. If you've seen it before, you can keep listening. No. 
We are inside a wood-paneled dining room with a two-tone mural on one wall, in the style of Northwestern Native American tribal art. The other wall we can see is dominated by a stone fireplace with a deer's head mounted above it. A fire is going and a few dozen logs are piled on one side under a candelabra. Four figures sit in wooden chairs around a long, polished wooden table decked with dishes of food and a plate in front of each seat, except for one which features a bowl instead of a plate. The table is set atop a long but not quite wall-to-wall carpet. A middle-aged woman, Sylvia Horn, sits at one end of the table, while a middle-aged man, her husband Benjamin Horn, sits at the other. Both appear to be dressed in business attire. Their children sit on either side of the table between them. Daughter Audrey, who is eating from the bowl, is more casually dressed, while son Johnny's clothes are a bit harder to perceive, except for one item, a huge white Native American headdress perched atop his head. His legs are folded up on the chair, and he rocks back and forth, occasionally making grunting or murmuring noises. No one else speaks or makes any sound as the image fades up from black, the soundtrack dominated by the quiet crackling of the fire and crickets or frogs chirping in the background. Audrey places her napkin on her lap and sips from a glass of what appears to be wine. Ben and Sylvia also have glasses of wine, which they occasionally drink from, while Johnny's glass appears to be filled with water. Audrey wipes something on the lip of the glass after drinking and then eats, slowly, thoughtfully. Johnny makes odd motions, almost like rowing with his hand, and Sylvia mostly casts glances at him as she eats. Ben ignores them all and eats his food indifferently. The entire array is captured from a single, high-angled, wide-lensed camera placement from the moment we fade up to just a few seconds before the end of this first minute, during which the full episode credits roll. At this point, a semi-hidden door in the wall bursts open, revealing a cheerful man, Ben's brother Jerry, standing in the doorway in a black leather overcoat with dark shades covering his eyes and a bluish-gray scarf around his black polka dot on yellow background bow tie, itself fronted with a small Eiffel Tower pendant. His shirt is a flashy turquoise blue, and his haircut, shaved on the sides while long and parted on the very top, distinguishes him in this conservatively dressed, other than Johnny, environment. He grins ear to ear as we cut to a medium shot and spreads his hands high in greeting, revealing a cigar in his right hand, as Sylvia, out of focus in the foreground, turns briefly to look at him and returns to her dinner, unimpressed. Jerry chuckles without saying anything, and turns to the hallway to address someone unseen as our first minute comes to a close. And that's it. That wraps this week of the first regular episode of Twin Peaks. Tomorrow, we deal with the big one. Uh, Probably the most... Well, maybe, except for the pilot, the most acclaimed episode of season one, uh, David Lynch's grand return after a a one-episode break, although he shot this out of sequence, so this actually was shot near the end of season one, even though it's placed early on. So look forward to seeing this one. It's season one, episode three, aka episode two, as it's commonly known since the pilot is episode zero, or Zen, the skill to catch a killer. You know the one. See you tomorrow.